0: This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. We also have the support of lynda.com, who, with over 2,000 high quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you learn creative software and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their seven day free trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L Y N D A forward slash. The Candid Frame. You can now download the latest episode of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8, you can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites, or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. If you've watched the BH Photo YouTube channel, much of that great content is thanks to today's guest, David Brommer, who is the manager of the BH Event Space. As well as coordinating the many guests and sessions that occur at BH, he's a wonderful photographer who understands and appreciates the history of photography. Along with the interviews he's conducted on the channel and the seminars he's led, he's provided many hours of fascinating and interesting viewing. His video on building a better composition is the very next thing you should watch after listening to this interview. I really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to speaking with him again someday soon. So enjoy our conversation with David Brommer. David, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have you. Uh, I've been watching the videos that you've been doing at the B&H uh, event space for a while now, but it was uh, the ones that I saw you do on on composition and developing a style that uh, really spoke to me and inspired me to reach out to you and, and uh, to have a little chat. So thank you for making the time. I know you're very busy, but uh, I do appreciate it.
1: It's a pleasure and right back at you it's an honor any any way we can spread the spread the word it's all good <laughs> so thank you for inviting me on the show
0: one of the things i loved about the uh, the video that you did on composition when you were talking about uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson was establishing for people the the fact that he based so much of his compositions based on you know classic approaches to to building building a frame. He was originally a painter and that influenced so much of what he did with the camera. And it wasn't just about the decisive moment. I mean that's a uh, you know that's a critical aspect of his of his work, but he built his frames even before that moment happened based on those concepts that he'd learned as a in a painter. And I loved and really appreciated you putting that out there because I think that's something that is often missed or, or rarely discussed when it comes to his and, and other photographers' work.
1: You know, you you want to be careful when you talk about Brasson. I've caught a lot of flack for for talking about Brasson, and I think a lot of people could consider themselves experts on Brasson. Uh, but when I looked at his work, I, you know, I really didn't see this this painterly thing. I didn't all the, the qualities that we, we talked about. I didn't see. I saw a harmony within the composition, and then on top of that that timing that he had and that harmony literally, if he stepped two feet to the left or two feet to the right, it it changes dramatically. So it's a, he knew where to be to capture that frame. And, uh, if it came from the painterly background, um, that's a, that's a great possibility. But as far as photography goes, Brisson is, is akin to a Michelangelo for us within photography. Mm -hmm. And, we definitely need to study him and look at that work and and get there. And, and you know, he only passed away really a short time ago, so we're not. He's not speaking to us from centuries ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, there's this whole snapshot aesthetic that has developed as a result of people using their camera phones. And in in your opinion, do you think that people can consistently develop? strong photographs and I, and I emphasize the word consistently without having an understanding of of you know the basic classic senses you know classic rules and and of, of composition
1: well okay that that's a good question and i i believe that either you could study the rules you can look at a lot of images and you can you can find them and it can work with you if you have that proverbial you have a good eye i mean I, has anyone ever looked at your photographs and say you have a good eye that's uh I think that's a prerequisite for all photographers at a certain point that we have to have that uh we can study that and we can look for it and we can apply it. It can also come to us innately the way a three year old or a four year old can walk up to a piano and begin doing incredible uh concertos without my god they're three or four um It's also hardwired inside of us, and I think some people can find it a little easier than other ones good composition good skills and and i really noticed that looking at uh uh in edo uh, before tokyo was tokyo it was edo and the uh japanese painter woodblock painter haroshige uh, uh, looking at his work i saw all the things that the renaissance masters were were teaching us but i i do believe from an art historical perspective that haroshige didn't have access to botticelli to Michelangelo, Da Vinci, uh, Giotto. He wouldn't have seen Giotto. There's a lot of that work. You had to go see it. It wasn't exported. Um, we didn't. We, Gutenberg was was just getting working at that point. Art catalogs weren't prolific. You traveled, took the royal journey to, to Florence and, and saw this work. Um, yet I saw compositional rules that that giotto laid out and it's uh it's it's hardwired into us and i think we just we need to through repetition and keep shooting and keep looking both at other photographs and photographs we're taking we get closer to it and understand it better
0: yeah i was watching a talk uh with Stephen Shurm, and he was talking about his american surfaces um body of work and he talks about creating images that where at first we're rooted in this, this strong sense of classic composition and then him purposely trying to break that and to become much more intuitive um, or, or just more sort of gutturally responsive to what he was seeing. And it, it brought to mind the, 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 you know, the classic idea that you have to know the rules before you can break them. Which is why I kind of wanted to start off the conversation with that idea, because I see I see some wonderful images being produced from this sort of snapshot snapshot um, aesthetic, uh, and some of it is is, is just wonderful. But that, but then I wonder at the same time, how far can you take it without having a, a really understanding about how the human eye experiences a frame or a photograph or a painting? How you know we're drawn to the brightest. You know, element in the in the frame how contrast how color saturation can really impact where you look within the frame and and all of that is 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 you know comes from uh, comes from painting but is just as applicable with photography and i think how at least how, how valuable having that understanding for myself helps me to produce consistently uh, better photographs
1: uh, Ibarra next that that's definitely having uh that balance that harmony all the the elements of good composition are are certainly important but the video and the the program that i was doing was beyond the rule of thirds so we get to those rules and and i think you definitely have to have a a, a good mastery level of them but then where do we go beyond where where is there a lot of uh things happening and, and one of the the i mentioned in the video is the uh uh the shot by um Helmut Newton, excuse me, Helmut Newton shot of the the woman in the alleyway. And I want to introduce the concept of a temporal obligation that you have to an image to, when the viewer looks at it, that it becomes three-dimensional in sense of time where what was going on before the photograph was taken and where will the photograph end. In other words, the photograph extends beyond the the uh the two dimensional screen or print that you're looking at it what happens after the photograph your mind's eye should be able to identify with that and in that case that was the uh the woman in the tuxedo that was out in the alleyway uh next to uh to newton's uh, paris studio and that photograph how can you in, how can you give visual clues that that let someone imagine what was going on before or after the photograph and that's uh i think that's key. And a psychological part of the of the image, it it has to uh, resonate with the subject, and not just in the sense of compositional harmony. It has to be a uh, it has to have a message. It has to have a voice. It has to be saying something. And you know, we we hear a lot all day long. And what do we really hear? What do we listen to? We hear a lot, but what do we actually listen to? And going on to the uh, proliferation of digital cameras, especially on on mobile devices, I, I like to. Think that that's a uh, that's a digital vernacular a digital vernacular image scape that we're constantly seeing through looking through habitually on our Instagram feeds our Facebook feeds. I mean, you you know, your finger is just making this critical judgment as it scrolls past images, or you're online and you don't even look at images. Which ones stand out? Which ones resonate? I think that's almost more important than the the compositional rules. Um, sure. Even uh, going into uh, the photographer Jim Vecki, his Center of the Universe project, yeah, a bunch of bunch of rule breaking going on there, but there's something there as a resonation that happens, and it uh, it attracts you.
0: Yeah. How did your fascination with photography start?
1: So I, I really wanted to be a, uh, an illustrator, painter. I, I have a great imagination. I, I was uh, I graduated high school in 1985 and was introduced to. Uh, role-playing games, namely Dungeons and Dragons, in 1980, 1979, right around there, at the beginning of that. So I, I consider I, I was young, and I, I got all these these influences, and I want to illustrate the fantastical th- fantastical things that were in my mind. Uh, however, I'm not really a good illustrator. I'm not really a, a great painter. Um, I, if I really push myself, I can come up with something relatively pleasing. Uh, but I found that constructing uh, my visions inside the viewfinder was far more appealing, and I, I also, I have a a, a bit of a latent empathy, and I, I like to relate to a subject. So I think the camera taking a picture, that bond that you have with the subject during that image making, and then be able to look at it later on is is just it's wonderful. It's gold. So that that's the, that's it. And uh, I also like the whole process. And you know, I discussed before. Okay, so we we covered the uh, the compositional aspect. We covered. Uh, the temporal aspect, we covered how it resonates, things like that. The last part, and this is something that you you kind of keep going back to that that digital vernacular that happens with mobile devices, is the the final result. What do you hold in your hand? If you take a fabulous photograph and I see it on my iPhone, I am going, going to have so much of an emotional reaction to that image. But if I see it in front of me, printed with a vision uh, the choice of printing that you use, whether it be a, a cyanotype, an inkjet, a platinum, uh, because of digital negatives, we have all these wonderful ways to integrate uh, old processing back into the into the whole equation, which we really kind of didn't have for much. Um, it, that's all part of it, too. Is it, will it resonate that way? And and you know when you go to a gallery and you see a beautiful image in front of you, a be- let's just say let's just go for something that I think we've all done. Have you ever put your nose about three inches away from an, an Ansel Adams print? <laughs> yeah. You know, you look into those blacks, you see a depth. Uh the the there's very few pure pure whites. There's all these highlights leading up to that pure white. I mean, they're they're beautiful uh prints. Um that's that's important. You know, you don't you don't just you don't just go right past an, an Ansel Adams print. You gotta stop and you gotta look at it. Now, if it if it was printed, let's say in an inferior faction, uh, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be it wouldn't resonate as much. There's not as much to look at. All that detail that's in those silver halides that he does, or like uh, George Tice's uh, the the gas stations. That's the last time I saw that. It was a, a triple process platinum print, so it was like a, it was like an HD platinum print. It was gorgeous, and for fifteen thousand dollars, it better have been. Yeah. But uh, but that's that's an attraction there. Beautiful photograph, great composition, great story, great voice, printed in platinum palladium. Can you you know, could you go wrong at that point?
0: Yeah, it's hard to. I mean, just and that goes back to the idea of just being able to see prints. I was at the Paris Photo LA show and and having the chance to to take a look at a work, even work that I was very familiar with, having the opportunity to see the prints and being able to experience them is so different from looking at them at a computer screen or even in a, in a finely printed book. And there's a, there's an engagement that happens with the photographs that I think is often missing now. And, uh, and that I try to to create for myself as, as much as I can. And, and the way you just described experiencing that print is just a perfect example of, of what sort of emotional experience you can have with a photograph.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a foundation for it.
0: So you write that you you're sort of drawn to religious and uh, mythological elements in, in your photographs. Can you sort of elaborate for people who have not had an opportunity to look at your work, uh, if you're listening to this uh, uh, this interview without having a chance to take a look at your uh, your photographs
1: today? Well, I definitely recommend take a look at some of the sites and, and Google the work. Um, but uh, in terms of, uh, I have a I'm a fifth generation American. I have a birth certificate from 1851 from a uh, a a great great grandmother. So the uh the family's been here a long time and has been northeasterners and they've mixed. So I'm uh I'm essentially w- was grew up Jewish and and have Jewish blood, but there is a there is some uh there is some as we say here in New York, there's some goyesha blood mixed in with that. So it's a uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a full-on American. It's a it's a mix. By the time I have an older brother, by the time my parents came around to getting me, there was no religion. Uh, they we we did a we would light candles. Actually, I want to light candles because it was cool to light candles on uh, on Hanukkah, and we did a, a Passover seder. Yet we we exchanged gifts on on Christmas, and we celebrated uh, the regular New Year and Rosh Hashanah. Didn't uh, maybe there was a better dinner that happened that night? So uh, I, I wanted to understand religion and spirituality and kind of went seeking it on my own and uh, discovered uh, and read highly of uh, the uh, Wicca and uh, neo-paganism. And neo-paganism, I I think, is a beautiful belief system. And and I'm throwing that neo in because if you're a straight up pagan, and the pagans were they were they had a lot of problems they were rough um y- human like you know they were very warlike neo pagans are a little bit more uh came up throughout the uh the sixties so there's a little bit of a hippie peaceful ethic that's going on with that, but essentially what it is is it's polytheism, so understanding that there are many deities and each culture uh and each each culture and each religion itself they shape these deities and I would say it's wrong if anyone religion or one piece wants to say, well, we are the only true, uh, the true one and everything else is false that I, I, I can't abide by that, but neo-paganism just kind of makes a nice, uh, a, a pantheon of deities from all religions and all of us that are humans can fathom and, uh, puts a face on them. And they're typically, some of them are more fanciful, uh, and some are more uh, stoic. Um, that's, that's always played into my mind. And I, I, I like the way that works because that lets me say that, well, all humans, no matter how different we are, we all have a deity that we can not necessarily worship, but acknowledge and serve in some way, usually by good ethics. So, um, that played in, I'm a, I'm also, uh, I, one of my first girlfriends was a a feminist and also being neo-pagan, you have a, you have a priestess and the uh, female aspect of the deity is placed very highly. So I always like in my photographs, especially my early 90s work, which was a lot of fetish fashion, was to give a uh, uh, make the female uh, element in the composition being dominant and being on top. So that was part of a kind of an important thing for me. I, not to say that the uh, the masculine elements aren't uh, aren't always weak in slaves and subs. Uh, that wasn't always the case, but but definitely always strong women. And you know, it, let's be let's be a little cheesy here. You know, I watched a lot of TV when I was a very little kid in the '70s, and Linda Carter is Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so that that's all part of it. Um, and I like to let those. You know, I told you that. Uh, a lot of compositions to start off in my mind are are these uh, are these fantasies, uh, these personal allegories I have, and I I want to try to get them out onto the onto the film. I have one uh, that's a, it was commissioned by a store called Fantasy Unlimited, and it's The Last Supper, and it's a fetish interpretation of The Last Supper, and each apostle is a different fetish, and we sourced local models, shot it with a uh, Fuji six by seventeen panorama camera. And then I have that printed in, in platinum now. And uh, I, I've also made it larger. But it's a, it's a really it's a beautiful image. It's a cool image. Uh, there's a lot going on. A direct correlation to uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper, even down to the gestures and the shapes that he used, we incorporated right into that, uh, that uh, Last Supper.
0: And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. When it comes to designing your site, you want a good design, which includes easy navigation and a good color scheme. But one thing that can really set the tone for your website is typography. The font that you choose to display text on your site says as much about you and your work as your photography. Squarespace provides you the opportunity to find the perfect font to fit your needs by handpicking some quality, typographic choices from both the Typekit and Google Font libraries. Whether you whether you prefer something subtle and quiet or strong and bold, you'll find something that's just perfect for you. Find out for yourself by taking advantage of their 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and go for it. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code candidframe to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace Everything you need to create an exceptional website. How how important was it that you were basing at some point your photographs on things that you had a fascination or a passion about? in terms of your development as a, as a photographer, because initially when people start, they just sort of photograph anything, but did, did you having this particular focus for a certain percentage of your work really sort of help you refine your, your sensibility, your eye, your style, for lack of a better word?
1: You know, a- absolutely. And at the same time that my, my style took on a, a definitive direction it was okay. First thing you have to get, you have to get the mechanics down and that, during that period of someone's exploration with photography, it's very rare that they're going to do some really magnificent work and I can liken it. I'm just going to say that I like crafting the print. I had a dark room in my house when I was 16 years old, 17 years old, I, I got a dark room and uh, I, I remember printing and I, I remember printing pretty shitty. <laughs> 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 you know, I learned from a, a, a uh, experimentation being in the yearbook club at the uh, high school and uh, I wasn't a great printer. It wasn't until I saw Maplethorpe's autoportrait at let's see, I saw that autoportrait. I want to think maybe it was MoMA. I'm not too sure where it was, but this this uh, it's a it's a small print. It's about eleven by fourteen, and it's Robert Maplethorpe wearing a leather trench coat, holding a Tommy gun, and he's standing in front of an inverted pentagram with a white wall, mm-hmm. a very high key contrasty, an absolutely gorgeous print. What struck me was the layers of black that was in that leather jacket. It was printed so fabulous. And I I put that print and I I lodged it inside my head and I made it a a reference print. And anytime I'd go into the darkroom and I would print and I would wash the print in that final bath of water, it would make sure that all the other paper was closed up in the safe box and turn on the lights and look at the look at that, did I get all those zones? Adams talks about the zone system. And it's like, for those of you that aren't so familiar with it, we'll just say real quickly that zone system is that you've got a scale of 10 on one is absolute black and 10 is absolute white where you can see no detail in the highlight and then one being that shadow where you can see no detail in the, in the shadow. And then in between you start to see more details and gradations. This print had that, that, that Maplethorpe auto portrait had all 10 zones in it. And that's what I always went to look for when I would print afterwards. That level, you can't get to those levels very quickly. You can, unless you're some kind of a prodigy, you've got to make a lot of work and get into it and understand it. So what you were talking about before on the uh, coming up with the reasons why to make these photographs, you know, in addition to learning how to craft the print, you really want to say something, and that's you know all the great masters, all the all the paintings, they're they're telling stories, and and what is photography? Photography is either a purely aesthetic shot or a storytelling option.
0: Yeah, you, you know, the, the, the point you just made about having an image that sort of burn into your consciousness, I think is so is such an important part, at least of my photographic life. I, I was talking to someone uh, yesterday about uh, Bill Allard, William Albert Allard, who's a National Geographic photographer. And I go back to the uh, the story he did on minor league baseball probably 25 years ago. And some of the images in there, I just I can see them in my mind's eye. Even without taking a look at the, you know, his retrospective book, or, or finding somewhere where I can take a look at those images again, and you know, considering the thousands and thousands of images that that pass by, there are so few images that that. That burn themselves in our consciousness in that way, and and can help inform what we do as photographers. And I think that finding those images for ourselves, regardless of whether you're a beginner or advanced photographers, is so important because it it helps not just inspire us, but it helps inform what we end up doing. Not so much that we're mimicking it, but that it it gives us a reference point for our own work.
1: I I like to think of that as your your uh, image vocabulary. And it's, yeah, you need to have that. I mean, if you don't, that's why it's so important to go to bookstores, go to openings, go to galleries, whenever you travel to a city, jump online and look at their major museums and see what's up and, and see what's going on. Especially if it's a, like a, you talk about the, the uh, Diane Arbus, um, her at, uh, at the Met, she had a a major show and I think it was uh, 2004 and um, it was really cool. It had her dark room as part of the uh, part of the exhibit. But it was such a, a beautiful exhibition. Aside from Arbus's best work, that really got you know the I, right now. I, let's just see if we're on the same page. Diane Arbus image. What comes to mind?
0: Uh, the boy with the grenade. Ah, cool. That's the first one that comes to mind. Those
1: skinny legs, yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> awesome. Um, I, I was thinking that the twins, the two girls. The oh twins. yeah. Uh, um and so the in, in all the work she did in the, in the in the mental hospital with the patients uh, it, amazing stuff um yeah you got it you have to have that vocabulary you have to see those all those images and and make your discipline yourself to to check them out also though i want to issue a warning on that is um when i was developing my style i was getting very close to to richard avidon and uh, even got nicknamed in seattle for a while they says oh it's a david don shot um <laughs> At the, at the same time, you, you got to be careful that you don't expose yourself to something that's contrary and diametrically opposed to where your where your destination is as a photographer. And for me at that time was Joel Peter Witkin. I, Joel Peter Witkin, is, he's a, a god among photographers. That man's work is absolutely amazing. So good that I, I used to be afraid to look at it because I would be drawn to it and want to Put that in my vocabulary and have it influence me, and whether consciously or subconsciously, try to do something that was Witkin-esque. And I'll tell you, that's not that wasn't my style. I like to present reality, boom, in your face. I want you to analyze it. I want you to come to your own conclusions from my photographs. Now, if I take um, eagle skeleton uh, eagle skeleton uh, wings and I put them on the back of a cadaver. Or I'm trying to do something like let's let's say a uh, uh an Icarus theme I mean, okay, so there I can say that well, it kind of goes into my fanciful my religious my mythology stuff okay, but now i'm I'm really modifying things heavily. I would rather have somebody without wings pull off Icarus than something constructed, but Witkin, if he was going to choose Icarus oh there'd be there'd be something really crazy coming out of the out of the back, some form of wings or or um, burning or something. I, it would be, he goes to that place. I want the, I wanted it to be within the expectations of my subject, not create a subject like that.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, the series of portraits that you did in Seattle, you know, against the the, the white seamless, um, you know, Avedon is famous for that, but, you know, he doesn't hold the patent on that. And I think that, you know, just because he did it so well doesn't mean that it should be avoided. But even though you were, you know, following a a similar aesthetic, you were really calling on your subjects to give you something a little more than just sort of standing there sort of absently in front of the the backdrop. Why don't you talk about what what that was and how you solicited that from your subject and, and why you thought it was important for that series of images that you were making?
1: Oh, okay. So sometimes I don't always know what I'm doing, but I keep myself moving in a direction. So the Seattle suspects, pretty much what was happening was I was going to leave Seattle in about six months, and I had photographed a lot of people in Seattle and worked within the style that I would, of course, shoot the uh, the Seattle suspects final project in. Um, I wanted to when I went to Seattle. I came from suburban New Jersey, and there was a lot of Pearl Jam. There was a lot of Soundgarden and a lot of Alice in Chains. I love Alice in Chains dearly. Um, and there was that, that was the music that came over. And then as I looked and researched it a little bit closer, because I, I actually was considering moving to New Orleans or Seattle, um, as I looked at Seattle a little bit more, I started to fall in love with it a couple of that. There's a, there's a northness to it it's it's the north and i come from the northeast this is the northwest i like that northern sensibility i like the the fact that seasons and weathers happen you know it's not it's not uh um actually uh you're you're, you're in california or are you in yeah so- i'm in california
0: you're near, near pasadena
1: okay so you know you're you got a nice the <laughs> here weather is nice the weather here in the north is is we go through our seasons you really feel it so uh getting back to the um there was an aesthetic that was Seattle was known for that uh, the stocking caps, the uh, the grunge look, which would be like the plaid shirt, the Doc Martens. Even though I'm wearing a pair of Docs now, some things I guess never leave you. But um, that look, um, and then because the economy was challenged at that time, it was it was. If uh, I understand, that Clinton was just playing instruments on Arsenio Hall show, and and things were new. The internet didn't exist. Uh, we wouldn't be having the Skype phone call. There there were some things happening then. It was much different. You'd have a microphone hooked up with a suction cup to a phone, <laughs> a landline. Um, but uh, so when I got to Seattle, I expected to see all that. And I went out for all that. But I, I met this uh, this girl and she said, uh, oh, you should come to this club. It's called Colorbox in Pioneer Square. It's where people like us go. And uh, so I went there and I found this amazing group of uh, the subculture. It was a counterculture to the counterculture that was the grunge movement. Wow. It was this, uh, this Gothic industrial dance movement, mainly focused on uh, downtown Seattle um, and, uh, and a little bit, and of course Capitol Hill, but it was the the Seattle had its own bat cavers, much like London had the original bat cavers, but Seattle had bat cavers and I fell in love with them. I thought they were great because there was a lot of tolerance. And I'll be honest with you, growing up in central New Jersey, um, I happen to be straight, but I, I really don't care one way or another. Um, a lot of people cared your sexual orientation where I grew up. And that always kind of bothered me that, you know, why can't you just, you know, be who you are? So I go to Seattle and this town that was known for that uh, grunge ethic. And I, I find something that's even that's a, a subculture that's vibrant and and very uh accepting and uh, wanted to get to know them better, photograph them and let their voice be told. Now I think the project's important because Seattle is so much known purely for that grunge movement. That wasn't the only thing going on. There were multiple movements. I have a lot of drag queens are in the Seattle suspects. And, you know, if you think back to it, this is the mid nineties. RuPaul uh, doesn't have her own show yet, yet she's doing wig stock. And uh, the, uh, the, the drag queen uh, culture really, started heavily in the, the mid 90s and and the drag queens of today are are very similar to what was going on already and I, I love them i went to photograph them i thought they were they were great
0: well it's a great body of work i really love those images um, Dix. and and, they, and you're still showing them, uh, they're still moving around, being exhibited. So tell us about, you know, getting the work out there because I think a lot of people produce a lot of wonderful work, but then, you know, it gets relegated to, uh, you know, boxes on their shelves or images on their right. hard drives. So, you know, what what's the what's your journey in terms of you, you know, getting your work exhibited and and getting it around?
1: Well, okay, first off, I I want to say that I I actually I suck at this. (laughs) (laughs) You owned the gallery for a while. (laughs) The work, yeah, the work, uh, the suspects were seen in Buffalo last in 2011. Uh, They, they're, they've been in storage. Um, They're all, the the show is framed, matted, printed 16 by 20 fiber prints that are pretty much all those prints are at about 96% of my expectations. Because you can always print a little bit better, uh, but they're all good. Um, they're they're ready to go to the next one. And I'm in talk with a a gallery in uh, uh, called Mark Miller Gallery. And when I say I'm in talks with them, I, I believe that you have to court a gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's many programs on the B and H event space, especially uh, Ariel Schanberg. It's his uh, getting known, being shown. So anyone who's really interested in that can absolutely you should go listen to that because we can't sum this up quickly. But I'll say this much that. The Medici's had something called the Medici code and it was nothing beats the personal touch and build loyal alliances. You can't do that in a flighty manner. This requires lots of dialogue with the gallery. It understands, uh, it, it means that you have to understand the gallery and what their mission is and who their clientele is. Um, they're going to have to like you and they're going to have to like your work. That's all part of it. Um, also, there's the fight. Does the gallery feel that it can benefit financially from it? Will it, hate, will it help pay the rent? Um, your work has to be in in line with all that. Now, as far as the other piece of advice I'm going to give, and this one is a, a big one, um, getting rejected, you are going to get rejected a lot, a real lot, and it's going to hurt. Um, rejection happens in the arts when you apply for a and uh, a uh, if you apply for a grant or you apply for a Maybe a studio share. Um rejection happens. Uh you know, I, I've never been in the Seattle Erotic uh or the Seattle erotic show. I've been in Coca Center on Contemporary Art Northwest, but as far as the that's the Seattle erotica thing, I've never been in there. Now should the Last Supper be in there? <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh but you never know. That curator, that decision maker, that's not you that's a that's a rough one. There are some other things that you can do and i I recommend highly to get involved in community um, there may be a co-op gallery there may be the uh the coffee house there may be the library there may be uh the hallway in a in a in a building that has professionals like dentists and doctors and and firms in uh see if you can score some space on those walls uh The squeaky gear gets the grease. So the, the, the artist that's most out there will get shown the artist that hangs out um, and has all their prints in boxes and doesn't socialize and doesn't go out. Yeah. They're probably going to stay. Well, we know um, the, uh, the, the nanny, the Chicago nanny. Uh, yeah. Vivian um, Meyer. Vivian Meyer. Thank mm-hmm. you. Look at her. I mean, the, the woman is Vivian is dead and decomposing and her work turns up that was kept in boxes and lo and behold, it's uh, the mouse that roared this woman's work was fabulous. A wonderful body of work uh, that's incredibly admirable. And she, it was in boxes during her whole life when she was creating it. So, yeah, you got to get that stuff out there. Websites, uh, going to um, submitting. I don't think when you submit to the major competitions that you see that are really kind of marketing for like, Pdn curators, uh, things like that. I mean, it can't hurt. But you're looking at throwing, you're throwing basically like twenty to sixty dollars at multiple things like that. I would be selective for those. Uh, you should probably do it. Um, portfolio reviews are probably the best way. And and you know you, you know this one. You go to Santa Fe. Go to go to Pepillon. Uh, go to uh, Photo LA. Um, participate in them. Um, they're expensive and they weed out the wannabes. But if somebody's willing to drop four hundred bucks and then the travel to go to Santa Fe, so let's throw another, let's let's say unless you're crashing on somebody's couch, you're looking at eight hundred to twelve hundred dollars, so almost two thousand dollars to get your work in front of um, maybe Larry Gagosian's one of his curators. <laughs>
0: I've just returned from my travels in Europe, and I wish I'd had the opportunity to watch the two latest video courses offered by lynda.com, hosted by David Hobby, the strobist. The first in a series of courses that walk you through the strobist's personal approach to travel photography, from the gear he uses to how he researches for each destination and how he determines where to be for the perfect shot. This and the many other courses provided at lynda.com is why I enjoy the site so much. It's more than just how to use Photoshop. It provides you courses that can help you think about what you want to do with your photography. You can experience this for yourself and watch over 2,000 quality videos for free for a limited time. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for free for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash The Candid Frame to use it for a week. That's lynda.com forward slash The Candid Frame to start your seven-day free trial and help support the show. Hmm. Well, besides the advice that you just gave, which is just great, You, you... you ran a gallery space for a while, suspect photography, so what did you learn from being on that side of the table that you felt like was really invaluable to what you do as a photographer
1: well let me let me preface this by saying first and foremost, suspect photography was the greatest three years that I've ever spent working in a gallery and a studio together. The project was wonderful. that being said, suspect photography failed financially like <laughs> like pretty bad, <laughs> like a uh, a Texas energy company in the in the early two thousands, uh, um, like Enron. I mean, we we suspect photography was first off. We were very nice and we were very nurturing. Um, we weren't cutthroat, and I thought that I could try that formula and still survive. Which uh, we, you know we didn't have a good gallery list. We didn't have a good buyer list. But I would hear constantly on these first Thursday gallery walks where four hundred to five hundred people would wander through the, the hallways and go into suspect photography and see our show. And they'd say to me, this is the best stuff on the gallery walk. I used to think to myself, I didn't say it like, okay, take out your checkbook and prove that to me. You know, talk is cheap. Mm-hmm. My father says, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, money, money talks people walk, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's get the, show it to us. Um, how did it affect me? It it uh took me to a much higher level. There was a gallery uh called Benham Gallery, which was run by uh uh Marita Holdaway and uh, another woman named Lisa. And they it was a beautiful gallery and they represented some of the best photographers in the Northwest. Um uh, Paul Dalquist, uh Arnie Sarneson, uh, uh um uh, uh, oh, oh, Jacques Sturgis. Um, some wonderful photographers. Uh, they showed, and uh, they're they're wonderful people. In any case, uh, they they closed down now, which is unfortunate. I really wanted the suspects to be shown there, but just as I had the show in the book and everything was ready, uh, Benham uh, called it quits and moved out to Bainbridge Island, which was uh, much very very sad. Um, working in that that environment, that ecosystem, will take you up multiple levels. So I I always say I like, go to galleries be part of the gallery. There, there was a circle of people that came to suspect photography shows. They were the photographers. They were the enthusiasts. They were the admirers. Uh, they were people who were looking uh, to be part of a community. And, you know, I think back and I think like I just said to you that on those first Thursdays, it would be, be pretty common to have in between 300 and 450 people walk through. That was a big deal in the 90s. This is before the Internet in many ways. So how did you get that many eyes to look at work? Um, it was, uh, it was, it was a big deal. So, um, that would be the equivalent now of of having 20,000 visitors on your site. Um, Stephen Kasher gallery is around the corner from me here in, in Manhattan and Chelsea. And we go to almost all the Stephen Kasher openings. It, it's whether you love it or you don't like the work, it's, you have to say it and be part of that community and talk to the, the others that are in the room, the gallerinas, the, the owner. I mean, I, I don't know who Stephen Kasher is, but um, you got to be part of it.
0: Well, that was, that was going to be part of my, my next question. I mean, you're in New York, which is one of the great, great cities for a photographer, not only for, for, you know, creating your own photography, but just for consuming it. So, you know, for anyone going to New York, what are the places that you feel like you cannot miss uh, going to, both in terms of, you know, galleries and your museums or maybe even, you know, bookstores where they can, you know, pick up uh, monographs?
1: that's super easy and you know we'll start off if you go bookstore we start off with the strand and the strand is uh that's on 12th and broadway and you have to go to the strand their photography department is magnificent and i I know in my video i think it's been recorded i i always give a challenge out when i do a seminar and i take out ten dollars and i challenge all the new yorkers to go to the strand bookstore and spend ten dollars on a photo book um it's is it it's pretty amazing because of uh toshin and great prices at the strand 10 bucks will get you a nice little book <laughs> so, and if you if you drop 20 or 30 it's getting a little bit better so um so the strand as far as museums go I, I recommend that you you do a you check out what the met has uh and what moma has and what the guggenheim has those are our our big 3 um you could probably uh like the whitney there, there's some other ones but you'll get you'll get a little uh uh, Stendhal syndrome. If you, if you just keep going to all the museums in New York, it's like going to, if you go to Paris, you know, you hit up, got to hit the Louvre, got to hit the, uh, the Orsay, uh, you go to Florence, you've got to hit the Uffizi. You have to hit the Bargello. You have to hit the Galleria Academy. and then you can start to look at the secondary ones. You do your, do your research online and see what's going on. Um, yeah. MoMA, if you want to go to the photography section at MoMA, it's such an important milestone in photography. It had uh it had the greatest curators ever uh were the heads of the of the photography department um being uh having uh, uh Steichen and uh having uh did the family of man. Um and in any case, going to the photography department at MOMA is is can be wonderful or it can be really annoying because you will see very modernist photography. And you'll, if you're pretty good at your own work and you're confident, you'll look at it and go, "This is bullshit. My stuff should be up on this wall." So sometimes <laughs> MoMA will do that to you. Uh, the Met is a little bit more. The Met has some wonderful photography shows. So Met, and MoMA definitely, and you know the Guggenheim, if you if you can, definitely go. Um, MoMA free on Friday afternoons, or is it Thursday afternoons? It's like Target Fridays or something. So it's really crowded, but at least it's free. Um now as far as galleries go um you got to go to Chelsea and I I highly recommend go to Stephen Kasher uh um Bruce Silverstein gallery I I've yet to be impressed by them <laughs> but rusting cars large format rusting cars and textures printed really big sucks <laughs> anyway <laughs> but uh, that could be Bruce Silverstein um there's a number of galleries that are that are here and, and you want to hit them up. Uh, clamp Art, you want to see what Brian Clamp is up to. Um, know that, though, one thing about New York that's pretty annoying and why I like, the, actually, I like Seattle better and met much respects to this is that in New York, we have uh, very high rents and there's a lot at stake. And when I say a lot at stake, it's New York experimental avant-gardism and New York is long dead because you can't. You can't afford to be an experimental avant-garde artist in New York City. It, we're too serious here. There's too much at stake. It's unfortunate. And I like to see those old days of, of Andy Warhol and when Soho, when the gallery, the art scene was downtown in Soho. But New York City, if you don't come up with those rents, boom, you are out and, and there's going to be a designer store or there's going to be uh, a bank or there's going to be uh, a bar, it's gonna just push you right out. So the gallery has got to work really hard here and they only go with work that they know they can be safe with and can and can move. That being said, sometimes just walking through Chelsea, you stumble upon some amazingly executed work, um, especially contemporary uh, contemporary work mainly. Photography, it can kind of go either way. The other big one would be ICP. ICP is on 42nd and 6th Avenue, International Center of Photography. Uh, it was uh, Cornell Kappa's uh, old school and museum. Um, wonderful, right now they have a what is a photograph. Uh, they're, it, it's a good show, they're usually well thought out. ICP is very uh, high-end, upper, uh, a very uh, highbrow approach. Um, sometimes they get it incredibly right, sometimes the stuff is relatively boring. Um, no matter what, though, a trip to ICP, and if you go in advance, you talk about looking at, at prints. How would you like to see some like Ouija prints right in front of you, or how would you like to see um, the uh, the suitcase, the missing suitcase? Work. You can uh, you can book that sort of experience at ICP. Get in touch with them ahead of time, uh, and you can you can look at prints with with white cotton gloves on it and talk to curators. So ICP is a, a wonderful resource for photographers. And then as far as schools go, ICP is a, a if you have limited time is a wonderful continuing education resource in New York city.
0: Yeah. Well, let's briefly talk about your role at, at B and as a director of the event space. Um, um, what, what, do, what does that entail? And, and what do you, you feel personally you've derived the, the most from, from playing that role there?
1: Okay, so I, I've been with B&H seventeen years. I, I was full time. I went part time, and I was having. I had a studio on Lower Broadway, and I was working on uh, some some new work, color work, as digital photography was just starting to. Uh, digital printmaking was really good. Digital photography was still lacking. Uh, a couple of years later, digital photography would kind of kick in. But uh, then uh, my mom passed away in '99, and uh, I was at the end of '99. I was I was very traumatized, and I I went back to B&H full-time to kind of numb myself and just throw myself into work, but I really found a, a wonderful environment at b that let me, uh, trusted me to have a vision for the way that we would educate our customers, and about seven and a half years ago, uh, we opened the doors to the event space, and the event space is a state-of-the-art seminar room that can seat 80 people in the heart of the, the superstore, and uh, we get very creative with our programming. Uh, it is uh, a lot of my initial programs to to occupy lots of time. I would do a lot of research and teach a lot of them myself. Uh, these days, uh, I, I've stepped back a little bit from doing day to day programs at the event space, but just oversee large events, large uh, educational events that we sponsor. Like uh, a big one uh, that we've got. we well, have yeah, one coming up with Shane Holbert, uh, digital cinema. That's coming up at the DGA theater in uh, Midtown. One of these big events also putting together the digital summit when Lightroom announced Lightroom five, working with Scott Kelby and, and some just the best part of my job is I work with you know real leaders in the industry and the, the best photographers that are out there. It's an honor to work with them. And I listen to them and I can pick up things from them and integrate it into my own teachings and then put that as additional uh Concepts I can give students that we work with. We just did something really cool, we're very proud of. It started in October. It was in conjunction with Soho Photo, which is a co op gallery on White Street in uh, Lower Manhattan in Tribeca and uh, just south of Soho. And uh, um, what we did was uh, we had uh, two of their curators and educators uh, Sandra Carrion, you may know her, she was the curator for the crappy camera show if you're into plastic cameras, Plastic Fantastic. Um, And then it's also uh, uh, Lois Yeomans, who's a a photo instructor in the New York uh, school system. Uh, So uh, they came in and we had uh, myself and Deborah Gilbert, uh, who's uh, one of the event based producers. uh, She really masterminded this whole concept and, and got it together. We gave four portfolio development sessions, and then we had all the attendees within the next six months have to go through a suite of very specific classes. Those classes were um, were uh, processing uh, in like say Lightroom or Photoshop. They were uh, printing. Robert Rodriguez was teaching them how to do digital printing. Uh, there were uh, conceptual classes. Uh, there were uh, the composition class was in there. The style class was in there. Uh, so you went through all these, uh, these seminars and you did a rigorous uh, critique system 157 people participated in the, in the, uh, in the program, uh, 54 of them completed and didn't wash out. And 43 of them were just recently chosen for a show that's up at Soho photo. So they got their own show and mind you, as far as getting shown on your CV, on your bio that they showed at Soho photo in a, a juried exhibition. So, you know, you, It's hard to get that one show, that first show, but if you're after you get these, have you ever seen a really long list of where somebody is shown? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then you look at your own list and you're like, hmm. (laughs) 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 So this accounts towards that list. And plus the work was fabulous and they got to work with us. That's the most satisfying element of my job. Devorah Gilbert and I looked at each other at that opening that was filled to the rafters with truly good work. And some of the work I would have to say I mean, I really give two thumbs up. These were people that came to us with either didn't have a concept and we helped them find a concept and move forward, or people that had a concept and we tightened it up and uh, did some really nice work. There's this one guy, Kent, he's a retired guy, and uh, I can't remember his last name. Uh, he had uh, showed uh, work very timidly. He was in the graveyard. He put a, a camera on a tripod and he took off his shirt. He draped himself over a tombstone so that he looked... Uh, like he was completely naked, um, bald head, white body. Took this picture, printed it really well, and it was really cool. It was a great photograph. Then he tells me that he's going to Pierre Lachey in France. I'm like, can't hey, you have to continue the project? So he added a couple more photographs in Pierre Lachey, and now he's doing this ongoing project where he's he photographs himself uh, semi-nude, where it looks fully nude, but he doesn't take off his pants. But uh, I think he would if. Almost like an Arnold Minkinen type uh, type uh, body and look that he has, and it's really cool to see him develop this. I don't think that this older gentleman would have uh, would have spent his retirement and his years uh, moving towards something like that if it hadn't been for us.
0: That's awesome. Well, my last question is that I ask each guest to recommend one photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
1: (laughs) There's so many. Okay. I'm going to go with with, uh, somebody relatively easy. And I'm going to ask them to look at uh, Joe Babcock. J O and Babcock B A B C O C K, and uh, he has a book called The Invented Camera. And Joe is a uh, he's a, he's a pinhead. He likes to do uh, pinhole photography. Um, I would say take a look at, at Joe's work. And the reason I'm I'm just throwing that out there. and Believe me, there's a lot of names I'm I'm looking at here uh, that are are that are just that are huge. Um, I, Jacques, I mean, there's there's so many him because he really ties his camera his presentation, his subject matter, his technique, all form a circle. And there's very something very surprising about him if you look at the invented camera and how that works out. So I, everybody go out there and go Google Joe Babcock, check out his website, and, uh, and just get a look at that, uh, what he's doing there. Pretty cool stuff. And his invented camera work is what I highly suggest.
0: Great. And where can people go to find out more about you and everything that you're doing?
1: Well, you know, hit my blog up, suspectphotography.com. I mean, everything I'm doing is pretty much there. Um, I don't have so much of my, my archive isn't, isn't up. Suspect photography has the work I've been doing recently in the past couple of months, a couple of years. So the older stuff right now, I've gone through a couple of iterations of websites, but uh, right now that stuff isn't organized out there and uh, it probably will be it, it'll probably be relatively soon. I'm going to probably start working on a new database website. Uh, but uh, Suspect Photography is the blog. Lots of photography, lots of lessons, and uh, the occasional workshop that I do uh, outside of B&H also gets discussed there. And then really check out com slash eventspace. space. Uh, the event space videos that you can click on no matter where you are, where you're reading this or hearing this. Go to those videos and check them out. We curate a great list. we got really good stuff coming up. And Real Exposures, let you know what's going on with Real Exposures. Next week, I'm doing uh, David Wells, uh, who's a, a wonderful photographer. And um, it's going to be an interesting interview. And then uh, Ben Lowy is coming up. Ben Lowy is the first guy to shoot a cover of Time magazine with a, uh, an iPhone, a mobile device. And uh, he's just one of my favorite photojournalists right now. So I'll be doing a real exposures with him. I really look forward to that.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for your, for your time, man. It really, I enjoyed this conversation as much as I thought I would. Thank
1: you. Pleasure, Ibonarch. Anytime. Let's stay in touch. Thanks.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 35% off the purchase price of this and any and all books and DVDs i produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at TheOtherMartinTaylor.com. Our music is from Kevin MacLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is the Abadi NX, and this is The Candid Frame.